Today is Tuesday, July 18th, 2017. Time for episode 13 of the Barnhart Podcast. Today marks 300 days since the five dubia were presented to the man most commonly known to the world as Pope Francis. Has the bishop in white, or for that matter, the former head of the CDF, ever acknowledged that the dubia were even submitted? Or is this a matter of, if we ignore it, then it doesn't exist on the part of Bergoglio and his crew? Well, in my personal experience, um, ignoring problems and pretending that they don't exist tends to be one of the uh, main tactics that uh, people who are, shall we say, lacking in integrity use. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much what's going on. Just ignore, 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 deny, deny, deny. Unfortunately, that we probably won't see an, an end to this anytime soon. And um, if you go to canon212.com, you're going to see the CDF uh, or the counter on the, the dubia, how many days it's been since it's been submitted and there's been no reply. That's probably not going to stop piling up anytime soon. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. And, and the other thing to remember, and SuperNerd uh, maintains a Switzerland-like position on, on this question, but of course everyone knows that I don't, um, Bergoglio isn't the Pope. And so to expect Bergoglio to act like the Pope and do the things that the, bo- the Pope is supposed to do, and in fact to do the things that, um, that our Lord promised and, and bestows supernatural protection upon the papacy uh, to do— is is not going to happen with Bergoglio because he's not the Pope. And so if you're dealing from that false premise, you're just going to keep hitting these walls. I'm, I'm already seeing it. I saw someone um, in in who's considered a considered a traditional Catholic pundit commentator or whatever is now openly questioning whether Vatican I um, was valid. And that so now we're going back to becoming, are we going to become old Catholics now? Are we going to start this Protestant process of just going back and starting and starting to say, well, well, I guess this isn't true. This this dogmatically defined uh, uh, concept that the magisterium of the church has set forth. Well, since since Bergoglio doesn't fit into that category, I guess we have to say that that was false. And the next thing you know, you're all the way back. You're back before Luther. You're back before the Great Western Schism. You're you're back to basically the um, snake handling home church uh Protestant, Protestant, Protestants who were saying that, yeah, Christ founded a church, but it it ceased to exist probably with the death of the Apostle John and maybe even before that. But we're the ones who have to refound it. See, that's where all of this is going. You start from the false premise of Bergoglio being the Pope when he is not. And what this inevitably leads to, even amongst so-called traditional Catholics, is in order to hold this false premise, you're inevitably either going to lose your faith or you're going to go insane. That those are the two options. You have to start from a from a true premise. That's why I'm on this bandwagon. That's why I'm screaming and yelling about this. That's why I'm not giving this up. It, it is not acceptable to just sit and say, "Well, um, I can't. I can't really know for sure, even though I have all this objective evidence right in front of me and it's staring me in the face. And the only thing that that makes any sense at all is is this one true premise over here. But I can't say anything. I can't say anything, and I'm just not going to say anything. No, because if you don't say anything and if you don't take a stand on this, then other people around you start. You know, just because of inertia and momentum. People will be clinging to this false premise, and it it inevitably leads to either going insane or losing your faith. And either way, it's very, very, very bad. And if you're going to be a person who's speaking publicly, you have an extraordinarily grave responsibility. Don't think for a second. Don't think for a second that I do not feel the full weight and burden of the fact that not only do I hold this position, but I hold it out very, very, very publicly. Don't think that I'm not intimidated by that. Don't think that I don't think and pray about it every single day. And even after all of that, even after thinking about how incredibly important this is and and how my words and deeds and actions are potentially affecting other people, I still sit here every single day and am morally certain 
100% morally certain that Bergoglio is an anti-pope, that Ratzinger is still the one and only living pope, even though he's Ratzinger is the worst pope in history, by far, by far. I mean, makes Paul VI look look like, you know, yes, let, let's make Paul VI a saint. In, in comparison to the damage that Ratzinger has done, oh, yeah, at that point, I mean, good grief. It's just, it's not even close, the damage that, that, that Ratzinger has now done. But, yes, I, I understand and full the feel weight of this, and yet, and yet, morally certain, absolutely morally certain, and that... What what else can you say? If you're morally certain about something, you, you have to act on it. Um, and I guess this is kind of a this would be a little bit of a segue into the piece that I wrote on Sunday. Yes, the piece you wrote Saturday, the letter from the absentee father, it is a great example of when you change the context a little bit, it helps the truth shine through all the more clearly. Right. And I've the reason I bring it up is because I've received an enormous, enormous amount of just glowing, glowing, glowing feedback. Um, you know, multiple emails coming in using the word genius in terms of um, the form and the composition of the piece. And if you haven't read it, it's right there. And it's it's satirical. It's obviously me writing in the voice of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth Ratzinger, gloriously reigning. And from from the perspective of a father who has abandoned his wife and his children, still considers himself to be their father, but just their father emeritus. And his only job is, you know, to be contemplative and passive and to assure them of his closeness to them, not in action, not in any of those things, not in deed, but just his closeness to them in prayer over and over and over again, while while telling them, I fully understand what's happening. I see that this this other man, after I abandoned our family home and walked out and left the door standing wide open, I understand that another man has come in. He has declared himself to be now your active father. He is raping and beating your mother in front of you. And of course, your mother is in capitals because your mother is Holy Mother Church. And he is beating, abusing, and genuinely desires to kill every one of you children. And I see him doing this. And I want you to be consoled by the fact that I know what's going on and that I am close to you in prayer. And this goes on. But the big point of the piece that I wrote was pointing up the fact that this is all hinging on on Pope Benedict XVI Ratzinger's pride. This could all be fixed. One press conference could, could change all of this. It could fix all of this. But what would have to happen is Ratzinger would have to fully admit that he made a mistake, that he is in substantial error, that no, I can't bifurcate the papacy. No, I can't go be the contemplative pope and step aside and open up and make the, the, the papacy a collegial synodal office and allow my successor to go ahead and be elected while I'm still over here being the contemplative pope. That was a substantial error. That thus rendered my attempted resignation invalid. And furthermore, and this is this is why Pope Benedict needs our prayers so desperately. Be, beyond what he's done in terms of the papacy, if, if I mean, and that's a that's a staggering thing to say. Just beyond that, in order for it seems to me that in order for Ratzinger to make it through his his particular judgment before he dies, um, he's going to have to repent of his entire life and career of all of the mistakes he was a, a lot of people don't realize this still i think but he was one of the most influential people behind the failed second vatican council he was one of the intellectual drivers and that whole thing it was a failed council and it has been the biggest catastrophe I mean, it caused, it basically caused the almost instantaneous apostasy of 90 plus percent of Catholics in the West. And he's responsible for that. Not to mention that, you know, the promulgation of the Novus Ordo, 
allowing the the intense abuse. He had the power to do something about all that. We're getting now into into sins, not just of commission. Uh, yeah, commission in terms of what he did in terms of the Second Vatican Council the failed Second Vatican Council, but also all of these sins of omission every day where he had the position, he had the power to do something about these things. Every single day, one press conference could have changed all of this, especially when he was Pope. When he was Pope, all he had to do was call a press conference. The entire world press would have been right there waiting to go. And he, all he needed to do was go down the line and say, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong, this was wrong. We are now going to do this, 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 and this. He's, the Pope is an absolute monarch. He can do what he wants, okay? He could have fixed all of these things at any time, and yet he never did. And then executing you know, this maneuver that has allowed this, the ascendancy of this anti-Pope and this catastrophic destruction, and now in these days, he's pretty much admitting, he admitted it the other day, um, at the at the uh, requiem mass of of the German cardinal who just died, Meisner. he sent Meisner. He sent a piece to be read at this, in which he fully acknowledges that he sees that the bark of Peter is taking on so much water that it is about to capsize at any moment. He's fully acknowledging. He sees what's going on. He has the power to do something about it, and yet he chooses to do nothing. One press conference would end all of this. But what he would have to do is he would have to swallow his pride, and he would have to say those three little words that people just seemingly cannot say, and that is, I was wrong. I was wrong. And he's been wrong about so, so much in his life. His metaphysics is warped. Um, he has some some extremely incorrect ideas about things, and but it's subtle, and he's so intelligent that a lot of people just glaze over this stuff. But I think more and more people are coming to the realization that this man has some some pretty serious problems, um, intellectually, theology, and so forth, to the to the point of saying that some of his positions, while never officially promulgated in his capacity as pope, you look at his at his body of work and his oeuvre, and there's there's points of heresy throughout it. He's going to have to repent of all of that, and he's going to have to repent of this dumpster fire of a disaster that he has ignited, which he is directly responsible for, this Bergoglian anti-papacy, before he dies. He's 90 years old. He could die at any moment, at, at, at any time. We need to pray for this man. If And, you know, I have affection for him. Certainly, he's he's... Um, uh, for lack of a better word, he's 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 a lovable looking man. He's he's a lovable uh, person by all accounts. When you meet him personally, he is just th the epitome of graciousness. He he's he seems to be a, a fundamentally decent human being. But on the other hand, you know, and Super Nerd and I have talked about this. There's a lot of quote unquote really nice people who end up in hell. And it doesn't matter how gracious he is and how good his manners are and how lovable he was in life. My goodness, if he dies unrepentant of this disaster that he's caused, if he dies unrepentant of these heresies that he has that he has signed on to over the course of his entire career, going back 50, 55, 60, 65 years, he's going to have to repent of all of this before he dies. The man needs our prayers desperately, and it, it's also important to understand that this whole situation is, in fact, pivoting on this man's pride, on his intellectual pride and his inability to say, I was wrong. And so that's, that's you know, the, the whole analogy kind of came to me while I was at Mass on Saturday, and and it just kind of all came together and— um, and I wrote it out, and boy, the, the feedback on it has just been incredible, just incredible. Well, you've heard Anne make the comment before that 
if you start from a false premise that you're going to have trouble down the road, this this is a reference to basic elements of philosophy that if you start with something false in the beginning, it doesn't matter how flawless or well-executed your logic is going through. To change the, the context for a minute, if you start with a very complex mathematical equation where in the first step you say that 2 plus 2 is 6, I don't care what you do through the rest of the mathematical equation, it's going to be wrong. And these errors compound over time. And we see this with not just in the church, or especially in the church, where we start off with... with um, Bad ideas, whether it's Hegelian philosophy applied to theology, and, and then it, it all magnifies through down the road, you end up with, with a situation where it's not just errors of, of logic and faith anymore. It ends up with errors of morals. And this is just the way things tend to snowball. Exactly. And the thing that's interesting, um, and it's it's actually technically, it's a mathematical concept because logic is is a mathematical, is a domain of mathematics. So like Super Nerd said, if you have an extremely complicated uh, mathematical formula. And if you talk to a, a PhD level mathematician, I mean, this is, this is the bane of their existence because if there is an error, either at the base premise or not too far up the calculation chain, um, say for example, you start from the base premise that two plus two equals six. What happens is that you know, you can continue doing the math, okay? The, the gears don't lock up. So you can keep going and doing step after step after step after step. And what's, what's so difficult is that the output that you're getting appears to be true until you get somewhere down the line and you hit some wall. Now, this is exactly what's happening here. If you start with this false premise that that Bergoglio is, in fact, the pope, what that actually allows you to do, because Satan is a very good chess player and he knew that this is how the mathematics and the logic of this would would flesh out. You can take multiple, multiple, multiple logical steps away from the from this false base premise before you hit a wall. So you can get way, way deep into this calculus before you, bam, slam into a wall. Um, think of it this way. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite um, activities in school or, or in these activity books that I would have when I was a little kid were mazes. I loved doing mazes. So in, in a normal maze uh, problem puzzle, there's one true path through the maze. There are multiple, and, and basically every other path in the maze is false. And what you have to do is you have to find the one true path that leads through the maze. But all the other paths are false. So there's a path in which you can take two corners and then you hit a wall. There's another path in which you can take four corners and then you hit a wall. There's a path in which you could take 10 corners before you hit a wall. That's what's going on here. There's only one true path through this. There's only one truth. We all agree with that as, as sane, rational people. Okay, but you start from this false premise and there's, there's a myriad of false paths that you can take and it may be 10, 12, 15 logical steps before you, bam, hit a wall. And you have to start doing things like denying Vatican I. Or, bam, you have to start, you, hit, you can make, maybe make a few more steps, and then you get back to Luther. Or, bam, you, hit, you take a few more steps, and the next thing you know, you're, you're at the Great Western Schism in, in you know, the year 1000. And now you want to go off and become Eastern Orthodox or bam, you, you keep going and going and going until you're back. And you're, you're these Protestants who want to have a prayer meeting in your home where, you know, because the church ceased to exist at, um, let's just call it the ascension of our Lord into heaven, that the church that he founded only lasted a few you know, a few days, and then it became completely corrupted. And it's our job to completely refound. And yeah, no, no, see that that's where all of this goes. You're in the maze, but you're on the false path. You've got a false base premise. You're not going to make it through to the end. If you start from the true premise, not if, you know, our Lord said the truth will set you free. And it does. When you start from a true pr premise, 
the whole path just opens up right in front of you. And it becomes very, very easy to navigate your way through this. You don't lose your faith. You don't become scandalized. You don't look at this situation and, and start asking questions like, did our Lord lie? Which, I mean, with Bergoglio, that, that question, if you, if you hold that this man is the Pope and you are any sort of a logical thinking person, the question, did our Lord lie, is, comes up almost instantly. Or was our Lord mistaken? Or was our Lord even really God? And then, and then you're done you're done. And then you do things like you stop going to mass and so on and so forth. And, uh, you start having crisis, a crisis of faith and all of this. Um, I, I, I'm a terrible sinner, but I do not have a crisis of faith, even though I go to masses where every day that I know that anti-Pope Bergoglio is commemorated at the Te Igitur and in other portions of the Mass that this anti-Pope is commemorated as the Pope. And I, I know this. I know this. And I have no crisis of faith at all. You know, going to Mass is the is the pinnacle of, of my day. It is the pinnacle of my day. Sorry, super nerd. No offense. But, you know, when I go to Mass later today, that will be the pinnacle of my day. Um and so it, it's it's still a, a, a pleasure and 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 a wonderful thing to go to mass, even though this is all happening. There's no crisis of faith whatsoever. Uh, there's there's no sense of Christ is, has abandoned us, et cetera, et cetera. No, it seems to me that what this is, the way that this can be best described, is that the divine providence has allowed this to play out, so that we could see what. A, a papacy that was the full flower of this failed Second Vatican Council so that we could see what that would look like without it actually happening, in, in a sense, you see? This Bergoglio is the full flowering of the failed Second Vatican Council, but he's not the Pope, but we're seeing what this would look like. The divine providence is allowing us to look at this and say, look, this is where this whole failed Second Vatican Council is going. This is what it looks like. Oh, but but this has all happened, and you see it right in front of you, but the papacy has not been touched. The papacy has not been touched. Even though Ratzinger is the worst pope ever, the, the dogma of papal infallibility it, it's still intact because all of this crap that Bergoglio has done has nothing to do with the dogma of papal infallibility because Bergoglio isn't the Pope, but we're seeing what all of this would look like. And I'm also convinced that the reason why our Lord allows these things to drag on and on and on seemingly is because he loves us so much that he's willing to give us the maximum amount of time possible in order to stand up and defend him, to stand up and, and, ta and take up your cross and make a stand and make a profession of faith and say, no, that is not right. That is not the truth. And instead, what are we all doing? We're all just sitting here laying down and dying and categorically refusing, it seems to me, to take up your cross and to lay down your career, to risk your, um, your social connections, to risk your donation revenue streams through your PayPal button. I've gone over this over and over again. He's giving us all the opportunity to say, no, I'm, I'm willing to suffer and die for the truth of this. I'm willing to call this out. And of course, obviously, this goes for all the churchmen, too. But, you know, the Dubia brothers, the, the three now surviving Dubia brothers, they, they at least submitted the Dubia, uh, but they've, they've not done anything. They've not followed up. They've not issued a correction. And there's certainly no indication whatsoever that anyone is going to be willing to stand up and call Bergoglio out and say, look, this, this resignation of Ratzinger, this attempted resignation, this is so questionable at this point. This is so hinky. 
and there's clearly something wrong with Bergoglio. Papal infallibility is clearly not applying to this man, which can only mean one thing from a from a position of faith. It can only mean that Bergoglio is not the pope. And so, therefore, here's what we're going to do. We are going to declare this is what needs to happen. This is Anne waving her magic wand. This is the solution, and this is the only solution that will work because it's the only solution that is completely fa founded upon a, a, a base of the truth. They have to they have to declare anti-pope Bergoglio an anti-pope and remove him. It's not good enough to remove him, but still continue to acknowledge him as pope, because then history from here forward will continue to reference all of his bullshit spewings, Amoris Laetitia, and all of this crap as part of the papal magisterium. It is not sufficient to merely get rid of him, but allow him to falsely retain the title which he never had, the munis which he never had, which is that of the papacy. He's not and never was the pope. You have to declare him the anti-pope. You have to get him out of there. And then you have to wait for Ratzinger to die. It is on Ratzinger whether or not he then... Um, then reasserts himself and 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 practices and fulfills his munis as in the Petrine office. That's on Ratzinger. You cannot you cannot call a conclave until Ratzinger is dead. You have to get rid of Bergoglio as anti-pope, openly declaring that he's anti-pope, and then you have to wait for Ratzinger to die. If Ratzinger refuses to administer the church, if he refuses to execute the administrative component of the Petrine office, then you just establish basically what would be a regency, a, a filler government that just takes care of the day-to-day -day operations of the Holy See. You wait for Ratzinger to die. You have to wait for him to die because he's no longer trustworthy at this point. This, then there's historical precedence for this. Wait for him to die. Then you know the see is vacant. Then you call a conclave. If you do this, because you are you have your foundations in the truth, and this would be, I mean, talk about taking up your cross. This would this would be huge. This would be absolutely huge. Do you not have any faith? Do you not have any faith that in doing the right thing, that our Lord and his blessed mother would shower all of us with with such grace in doing the right thing and standing up for the truth that the situation would, if not totally resolve, it would at least improve. It would at least improve. But the question is, do people have the faith to do this? And are people so effeminate? Are they willing to risk everything, their careers up to and including their lives, their reputations, everything? Are they willing to risk everything for the truth? Sadly, what I see right now is the answer across the board is no. Um, and if that's the case, if that is the case, then all I can do is pray that supernatural intervention comes, that Our Lady stops holding back the, the, the arm of her son, and that whatever it takes to make this stop, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, that Our Lord supernaturally causes this situation to end and to be resolved positively, and I do not expect that I would survive that event. And it Probably not only cleaning up all the theological and philosophical problems in the church, it's probably going to take supernatural intervention to clean up the the bathhouse angle of it as well. And one of the things I thought about is if you are um, one one of the results of bad philosophy, yes, you, you're going to go down the rabbit hole of questioning everything all the way back to the time of Jesus. Or you could, on the other hand, just say, ah, none of it matters. It's just all make believe anyway, and then just go do as you wilt, to uh, quote Aleister Crowley, and you end up well, with the situation that we have now. Exactly, exactly. There are many, many people. Think about uh, people who, uh, who have, over the last 50 years, for example, been abandoned by a spouse and, and tried and did live their lives in according to the truth of church teaching and went through all of these steps and all of this rigmarole and so forth and, and remained faithful to their wedding vows. And now they're just being smacked across the face and insulted 
every single day by a man who is holding himself out falsely to be the vicar of Christ on earth. I, I can see, I mean, it's not a justification, but I can see how that would cause people to, to sit down and say, this whole thing is a sham. And it, it has been a sham all along. Trust, there are people who are completely losing their faith, up to and including becoming atheists. There is no God. There is no truth. There, it's all bullshit. I should just do whatever the hell I want and be completely concerned about me and my immediate, temporal, sensual wants and desires. What does that sound like? Well, that it's diabolical narcissism. It's abusing people to the point, betraying people to the point that they completely lose their faith and turn completely in on themselves like demons and just become become demonic. They become demonic. And now they're out in the world hunting and they're and if they descend far enough they start hunting other people they want to drag other people down with them it, this is a this is a pathology that just it's universal with these people you know they they just can't leave other people alone if they've been hurt and and they are incapable of being happy which is which is what diabolical narcissists become they're only capable of the demonic emotional palette of anger hatred jealousy and fear happiness gratitude pleasure um, authentic sadness you know the, the ability to mourn there's a reason why one of the beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn because being able to be sad is a is a very very good healthy thing that's rooted in charity. It's rooted in love, the ability to be sad. People who, who have sworn off all love and charity, they're incapable of actually being sad. They're only capable of being ang anger, hatred, jealousy, and fear. And so, you know, they just, it, it becomes a, almost a self-defense mechanism when you are abused by someone so badly. And that is what Bergoglio is. He is just, he's a pathological abuser and he's abusing the, the entirety of Christendom, the entire planet even, in a sense. And don't think he isn't enjoying every second of it. And that's what happens when you have a lack of fatherhood at the top or an absentee uh -huh. father in that case. Uh, let's change focus for a minute from the lack of fatherhood in Rome to a place with a somewhat different problem, Japan. Not only is there a lack of fatherhood in the land of, of the rising sun, but there's also a lack of motherhood. The Japanese nation is committing suicide by abstinence. A recent poll found that 31% of Japanese aged 18 to 34, as the prime fertility age, are virgins. And at this rate, the country's population could fall from its current number of 117 million to as low as 77 million by the year 2060. Some Japanese men claim that they, quote, find women scary, end quote. And they're talking about Japanese women, not American women, but I digress. Said one Japanese man, quote, once I asked a girl out and she said no. That traumatized me. I hate myself, but there is nothing I can do about it, end quote. And this from a nation that was once revered for its warrior culture? To what do you attribute this abysmal state of affairs, no pun intended, in Japanese culture? Well, um... It's very interesting. Japan has been regarded as uh, historically, for for whatever reason, I'm I don't know much about um, Japanese history at all. But it has been Japan has been regarded for quite some time as being one of the most depraved cultures, one of the most depraved human cultures on earth. Um, in terms of torture, in terms of, you know, thing, war, war atrocities and so forth, and just the overall culture in Japan. Um, it's widely regarded that there are no tortures that are even remotely as cruel as the Japanese. And if you look at, see, like, for, exa for example, the rape of Nanking and the way that the Japanese treated Chinese and treated Koreans and so forth in, in terms of war, it, it's things that 
that that are so evil they can only be described as satanic and the samurai culture was also extremely satanic um lots of lots of suicide lots of just human life has has no value um you know a man makes a mistake and his best friend beheads him just instantaneously without any hesitation tremendous amount of homosexuality not surprisingly and uh, boy rape associated with the samurai culture a lot of people don't know that but the samurai culture was very big into homosexuality and man boy sex which is part and parcel of a satanic uh culture and mindset obviously so Japan and the Japanese culture, even today, can be looked at as the leading edge of as, hu- as the entire human race just you know, spirals down as, as we're watching this happen. We tend to focus on the Western world, on North America, Western Europe, et cetera. But you can look to Japan as the leading edge of where these depravities go. And it's an extremely interesting and very nuanced point. And I think maybe some people who are listening to this will be very surprised to hear Super Nerd and I saying that it, it, is, a, it is a very, very bad thing that the Japanese have basically stopped having sex. A lot of people who, you know, aren't very nuanced and sophisticated and don't have a very good understanding of of Catholic morality and so forth would think that Super Nerd and I would be saying, oh, that's wonderful. No one should ever have sex ever. No, 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 no. What what Catholic morality said is people people should not fornicate. People should not have sex outside of marriage. But Catholicism is is very, very strenuous and clear about the fact that if people do not have a religious vocation, then what they should should do is they should get married and they should have lots of sex and they should have lots of kids with their spouse. Sex is great. it's, It's how human beings are made. Asexuality, this is very interesting, asexuality is actually the 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 last frontier, if you will of um of sexual perversion and sexual depravity um so when you hear people say a lot of times um homosexual men will say oh you know i'm i'm asexual as if that excuses them or that says well that's no big deal in fact that's every bit as much a red flag if not even more of a red flag because what that points to if that's true, and a lot of times it isn't true, um, a lot of times men who are completely and vigorously homosexual will claim to be asexual um, as a cover, thinking that, well, that that is the explanation why it is that I'm 48 years old and I've never touched a woman in my life or something like that. It, it isn't. Asexuality actually points to diabolical narcissism every bit as much as homosexuality. And it is even a step beyond, and we're seeing that in Japan. These people are have become so completely diabolically narcissistic, they are so utterly turned in upon themselves that they are turned off and they have no interest in any sort of association with other human beings, even for sex. Even for sex, they would rather partake of, in the Japanese culture, it's pornography. Apparently, the pornography culture in Japan, it puts, puts the American porn industry, you know, makes it look like absolutely nothing. Apparently, the porn in Japan is everywhere, everyone's using it, and it is way, way more twisted and perverse and disgusting um, across the board. So the Japanese have absolutely no interest in having any relationships with other human beings. They only are interested in even the image of of other human beings purely as an object, purely as an object for them to use for masturbatory um, gratification. And now I think a lot of you will have probably seen this on Drudge over the past week. There have been numerous articles linked about sex dolls and sex robots and how this industry is just exploding. Japan is obviously leading the way. And how the thought is, is that within, as this technology is just increasing and advancing on on a parabolic scale, that within just a few short years, people will 
have so completely descended into universal diabolical narcissism that human beings will no longer have sex with other human beings. They will either masturbate or everybody will just have one of these sex dolls. And all people will do is ever have sex with these robots. And then actual human procreation it will, will grind to almost a screeching halt. And it will all be done in the mortally sinful way of presumably some sort of in vitro fertilization. Or if if there is no super inter supernatural intervention and this technology is allowed to progress, it will eventually get to the point where science figures out a way to completely gestate a child in a synthetic uterus somehow. And it will be like The Matrix in, that, in the movie The Matrix in that sense. That's where all of this is going, and you can see it in Japan as the point of the spear of this demonic depravity that people are just completely turning away from each other, even for sex, just no interest in dealing with other human beings. And, and you say, okay, so they're having sex with these dolls, but I, what I would say is that as people descend in, into diabolical narcissism, a greater and greater priority for them, as we discussed a few minutes ago, is, is then hurting other people. They, diabolical narcissists want to hurt other people. What's interesting is that you can't hurt a doll. You, you, there's nothing you can do to a doll to ever hurt it. So I suspect that what will happen is if there is no supernatural intervention, that yes, this doll thing will take off but then it will crest and then it will turn and will go back down the other side to where because dolls cannot be hurt, both physically and emotionally, that the new um, exotic, the new exotic and most, I guess you could say, expensive form of sexual pleasure will be in human beings once again going back to having sex with other human beings, but only for the sole purpose so that they can hurt them, either physically or emotionally or whatever it is, or both, or eventually even kill them in the sex act, you see. So the only, really, the if this is allowed to go to its, to its logical conclusion, the only time human beings will have sex with other human beings is when they have the, ex, is for the express purpose of hurting the other person, whether that person is a person of the opposite sex, the same sex, or a child. Um, that the new exotica in terms of sex will be will be essentially snuff, whether it's physically killing a person or or emotionally, spiritually trying to kill a person. And it's just it's terrifying to behold. It's absolutely terrifying. And this turning in on oneself, it reminds me of a passage from uh, Father Gabriel Mort's book, uh, An Exorcist Tells His Story where he, he was uh, making the example of, of how to identify when somebody has uh, demonic possession. It was, it was talking about a, a young girl and, and asked, what is the relationship in hell between uh, siblings or parents? And the child very creepily sneered and said, you idiot. There, in, in hell, there are no relationship, relationships between people. Everyone is turned in on themselves by their own free will. They would want to lash out if they could, but they hate themselves first before anybody else. And it, it really sounds like that's a prelude, what you're talking about in Japan, this turning in on oneself. It, in, in, the, in the sense that um, at the highest states of, of sanctity, you begin to experience heaven while you're still alive. This sounds like you're experiencing hell before you die. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even C.S. Lewis said that for all of us, whether we end up in hell or whether we end up in heaven, and I believe this is from The Great Divorce, um, and there's there's a problem with The Great Divorce that goes to your point, super nerd, so make sure I circle back to it. But what, he, what the point that's made in The Great Divorce is whether you end up in hell or whether you end up in heaven, you will look back at your entire life and let's say, for example, you end up in hell and you will see your entire life on earth as just being part of the domain of hell. You will, you will have considered yourself to have been in hell since, since the moment of your conception. If you end up in heaven, 
you will look back at your entire life, including all of the sufferings, all of the bad things that happened to you, all of it. And you will realize that that was all just, uh, it was a part of the domain of heaven in the sense that it was just the road getting there. And you will, you will rejoice in it and be, and be grateful for it and be grateful for all of your sufferings. So that's, that's how the human mind will work in all, in all of this. Um, so circling back to the problem with C.S. Lewis and what you were just talking about is that I think a lot of people have the conception of hell and demons. Let's think about demons specifically as that the demons, you know, they get together and they're working against us. And then when they're done working for the day, they go back to hell and they kick back and they, you know, they hang out with each other and cause you know, they're on the same team. Right. And so they have relationships with each other and there's, there's a period of, there's a domain of having normal interactions, even between the demons or between other human beings in hell. Hey, we're all in hell together. We all, we're all, we all share the same lot that there will be these, these periods or moments of, of repose and, um, socializing for lack of a better word. Um, and I think that one of the things that one of the things that C.S. Lewis wrote that contributes to this misconception is, of course, the screw tape letters. Now, the screw tape letters are are very profitable and, and interesting to read, but it, it implies the falsehood that there is some sort of society and relationship in any meaningful sense between demons or between people who are damned to hell. And, and that just isn't the case. Um, now, the point that SuperNerd just made that that there is no there is no fraternity of any sort, none in hell. People are completely diabolically narcissistic. They are completely turned in on themselves. The thing that I'm not sure about, and maybe a maybe a theologian would want to chime in on this. Um, I. I have read and heard, and there is teaching, that people in hell are raging. They rage at each other. They rage at people they know, uh, in particular people they commit um, sins against the Sixth Commandment with, because obviously that there was a cooperation there. Um, there's a cooperation between sodomites and all, all the people that sodomites have had sex with. If they all end up in hell together, that they will— they will rage at each other. And what I, what I was told is that this was actually a mercy. This was a mercy that God provided because it provided a distraction from the true torment of hell, which is the knowledge that it's the knowledge of the loss of God. It's the knowledge, not only of the loss of God, that he, that he exists and that you will never, ever see him, but for the baptized, I think super nerd, uh, mentioned the fact a couple podcasts ago or three podcasts ago that, you know, the bottom two thirds of hell is filled with Christians. It's, it's way worse for baptized Christians. And the reason is, is because a baptized Christian, at least for a moment, and for most people, it's more than a moment, but at least for a moment of their lives, they had it. They had the beatific vision. They were baptized, they were cleansed of original sin, and there were at least a few moments in their life where they had not committed a personal sin. The knowledge that a damned Christian will have that he he at one point could have had the beatific vision and that he could have it could he could have regained it so easily. All he had to do was enter the church, go into the confessional make a confession and bam, you're back in. All of those sins, the personal sins are, are, are cleansed away in the blood of the lamb. Now you still have to be purgated of any attachment to sin that you might have, but, but the sins themselves are gone and you could have had heaven. You could have died well. It's so simple. It's so easy, especially for all of us in the West. How many Catholic churches do you drive past every single day? How many, how many, how easy would it be for you? How easy would it be for you to do this? And if you end up in hell, the ultimate torment will be the knowledge that you could have had heaven, you could have had God, and you could have had him so easily, and he, he bent over backwards doing everything he possibly could. I mean, even after going to, going to Calvary and dying on the cross, 
even after that, here is this church here, even when we have an anti-pope, even when all of this is going on, you can still just walk into any Catholic church, go to confession, and and it's done. Now, if you're not yet received into the church, you have to be received into the church, obviously. But but these things are, this isn't difficult. These things are not difficult. And so people, there are torments in hell, and there are interactions only in the sense of raging. There is no community. There's no fraternity. There are no moments of repose ever. You are either completely turned in on yourself raging and raging and raging internally, or you are, as, as a function of this internal raging, you are lashing out at people around you, demons around you, and then also shaking your fist at God and hating God. And this is all, this is allowed by God as a mercy to distract you from the ultimate torment. Um, and one and of the so, one of the big torments is, is going to be not just that you arrived in hell of your own free will, but just and not only how easily you could have been saved, but every single instance where you specifically turned down the opportunity for conversion or for grace, it's it's kind of, in a, in a way it's kind of like if you've ever. Um, been working on a paper on a computer and the power goes out before you hit save and you yeah. all of the times comes back to you is like, I could have hit control S I could have hit save I could have hit save and I wouldn't be having yeah. to do f- six hours of work again how about for all eternity thinking I could have gone to confession I could have prayed the rosary I could have done whatever and you will know this in stark relief I could I could have driven the hour across town and gone to the the Tradmas Parish and been received into the church. Now, again, reiterating the point, the Novus Ordo Church is still the church. It's still extant, and all of that, it's all still valid. It's suboptimal, but it's valid. The priests have Um, the ability to forgive your sins just like the traditional priests do. Absolutely they do, 100%, and don't ever doubt that. That's why these set of acantists and these these crazy-pants people, they're so dangerous because— they are con- they are convincing some people that you know the holy sacrifice is not being offered by these priests that these priests cannot absolve your sins etc cetera, etc cetera. that is a lie that is a pernicious lie god is not god is not a jerk okay he's going to leave all these avenues open i'll give you i'll give you another example of this which which speaks directly to the bergolian anti-papacy this is how much god loves us so you, you'll remember that anti-pope bergoglio declared this year of mercy a year ago and and we had this whole year of mercy and there were all these holy doors all over all over the world okay the church supplies jurisdiction even for this man who is this wicked, evil anti-pope and who may very well be the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, the church supplies jurisdiction such that if you went through one of those holy doors, even though that was executed completely by an anti-pope, it's still 100% valid. All of that was true. I went through holy doors. I don't know how many holy doors I went through over the course of that year. No, even no, knowing as I knew that it, this was the work of an anti-pope, because God loves us so much that he supplies jurisdiction for acts like this. What the church does not supply is jurisdictions for a man who is not the pope to be the pope. That, that, that is supplying an office. That is supplying a munus. And that, no, 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 that, the church does not supply that, because the, the result of that would be abject chaos. But the church does supply jurisdiction in terms of things like, you know, Christ being able to just shower his mercy on us. Don't believe these people who are saying that none of these priests are validly ordained, that none of these masses are valid, that none of these confessions are valid. And there's some people, they're they're intrinsically intelligent, but again, they're starting from a false premise. And when you start, start from a false premise, you eventually just end up going off into the ditch. And that's where these people are. No, you, you still can get in. Even in a Nova Sordo church, you can still get in. Believe me, I think that, that if, if Bergoglio carries this to where I think it's going, 
and sets up a completely new, different, new world order Soros church, it's going to be really, really clear, guys. It's not going to be one of these things where we're all sitting around here stroking our facial hair saying, well, is this it? Is that not it? I think it's going to be really, really clear and easy to make if you have any sort of foundation at all in, in, in Christian doctrine and morality. It's going to be extraordinarily clear that it's no longer the church. And I think also what he'll do is he'll denounce the true church. And that will be another sign that, okay, this that over there, you have to stay the hell away from. But that hasn't happened yet. That has not happened yet. And every one of these Novus Ordo, well, I mean, I don't want to say every one because it is possible. It is possible for a priest to do things in terms of the consecration of the Eucharist that invalidates it. That is, it is possible. But the, the majority, the vast majority, I'll even say, of these Novus Ordo masses, the Eucharist is in fact being um, confected validly, illicitly. And sometimes the, de the degree of illicitity is very, very high, but it's still being validly confected. And if you can get a Novus Ordo priest to hear your confession and to absolve you, then yes, that, that is absolutely 100% valid. And you should avail yourself of that so that you don't end up in hell for all eternity thinking how easy it would have been how easy it would have been. But if you can get yourself to a to a traditional Latin mass parish or a traditional Latin mass celebrating priest, you're certainly you're certainly going to be better off. You're better off. And um, and I think it's safe to say that the amount of grace that flows through a beautifully celebrated um mass in the venerable Gregorian rite, the amount of grace that is flowing, I think it can be say is, is mathematically higher than the amount of grace that is flowing in an illicit Novus Ordo mass, certainly. Um, so you should attempt to avail yourself of, of the best. I mean, th there's nothing wrong with that. You should attempt to avail yourself of the best that the church has to offer. But if it comes down to it, don't think for a second that the Novus Ordo right now isn't isn't valid because it is. Where, it, where it's lacking is in disposing somebody to receive the grace. I've heard the analogy that the ability to receive grace, because the, the Novus Ordo Mass and, and the traditional Mass, it's still, well, when, when, the, when the sacrament is validly confected, it's still the same infinite source of grace either way. But the difference is how well you are uh, prepared and disposed to receive it. And I've heard the analogy made that the one's disposition to receive grace is imagine uh, imagine the the source of grace as a, a sphere of infinite size you know that, that's illogical but just go with it for a minute mm. and your yeah. disposition to receive grace is how much surface area you can attach yourself to it if you just sort of amble in and, and say oh yeah communion let's go and so you have spent no preparation you're not going to get much grace out of it uh, if you want to, if you want a uh, more human analogy, if you know you're going to have a really fine steak dinner, you don't tank up on food and, and things that will destroy your palate before going to have the steak dinner. You're going to uh, selectively fast beforehand. You're going to make sure that you have eaten nothing that's going to upset your stomach, so that you can you can maximize the experience of that fine steak dinner. Spiritually speaking, the more you dispose yourself to receive the graces, the more you are able to receive. And I think it's also worth mentioning that um, if you do have to go to a Novus Ordo Mass, even if it's a bad Novus Ordo Mass, um, what actually, it seems to me, would dispose you to receive more graces is, is if you were making acts of reparation and you were consciously, um, you know, telling, telling our Lord that... I see what's going on here. I see the, the illicit things that are going on here. I recognize it. I'm so sorry. I am making reparation for these things that are going on. And it depends on, you know, where you are. I, at this point, um, if, I, if I were at a Novus Ordo Mass, I would probably... Oh, I don't know if I should say this or not. Well, I'll be honest. I would probably just make a spiritual communion because the chances are is that I would be, I would feel anger and I would be distracted and so forth. But I would try to to channel that into thinking, okay, this this suffering that I'm feeling and this unpleasantness that that I'm feeling and this sorrow for this. I want to make reparation to you, O oh Lord, and I want to make a spiritual communion and, you know, 
please give me as much grace in terms of a spiritual communion as, as you possibly can. And just because I wasn't, um, I would almost certainly be feeling feelings of, of anger and so forth. I would probably not make a, a physical communion. I'd probably just make a spiritual communion, but I don't know. Super nerd. Do you have any thoughts on that? If you had to go to a Nova Sordo mass super nerd and it was bad, would you, um, would you receive? I don't know how to answer that question because in my entire life, I've only been to three and a half, as I call it, <laughs> uh, masses in the new right. And, and that half was, I was touring a, a, uh, a basilica here in North America and didn't realize what was going on because I'd never, I had not gone to the, the new mass pretty much my entire life. And it wasn't until it kind of dawned on me. It's like those, what they're saying vaguely sounds like, Oh my goodness, they're saying mass. And it, it and the reason I was so surprised by it is the, the whole comportment of the people, they were clapping and cheering. And it's like, I don't know what's going on in here, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden it dawned on me what was going on. I got physically sick after that when I realized what was going on. I don't know how to answer that question. I, I don't, I don't know if I, <laughs> I would probably drive 10 hours to find a real mass, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I'd probably be in, in more, more toward that camp. I've been, um, I have not received Holy Communion in a Nova Sordo mass in years. It's been, it's been years. And I, 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 in fact, I remember the last one I received at, and it was, it was Dominicans. And they all, all these Dominicans who were saying this mass, they all celebrated the old Dominican rite. And so their Novus Ordo was profoundly informed by the fact that they all said the old Dominican right. And so it was it was very reverent. And I did receive I and I went up and I was the only person who kneeled down and received on the tongue. Um, But it was it was a reverent Novus Ordo mass. And that has been I think that's been at least three years ago, at least maybe three and a half years ago. That's the last time I received communion at a Nova Sordo Mass. I, I would probably say if I had no other choice, I would uh, attempt to receive kneeling in on the tongue. And if I was refused, then that's not my choice. I've, I've, I've disposed myself as, as maximum as possible. And, and if, if I'm refused at that point, okay. That's right. And I, I can't um, emphasize enough spiritual communion. Guys, you can do spiritual communion all day, every day, there's, there's no limit to the number of spiritual communions that you can make with our Lord. And so, you know, if you're puttering around the house and, and doing chores and you want to stop for a moment and, and make a spiritual communion with our Lord, you can do that whenever you want. Doing it in the context of a mass is, is obviously, you know, very, very good and salutary. And especially if, if, you need to go to confession. If you need to go to confession, that's the, that's the whole thing. A lot of people think that if they need to go to confession, that they shouldn't even, they shouldn't even bother going to mass. Well, why bother going to mass if you can't receive communion? Oh, no, 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 no. You are still, you're completely obligated to go on Sunday and fulfill your Sunday obligation. And then if you do need to go to confession, then what you do is you make a spiritual communion. And what that will do is it will help you make a good confession um, later on when you're able to go to confession. So spiritual communion is extremely important and can be done all the time and can be done in the context of the mass itself. No problem. It's a good thing. Hey, people didn't, didn't used to receive Holy Communion, but a, once or maybe maybe twice a year up until the, the mid to late 1800s. So, you know, daily communication, this is, this is a relatively recent thing that we get to do um, that people didn't get to do before. People almost always made spiritual communions. And we had a lot more strength in society orienting us toward heaven. It's, it's only as things get worse that more of these floodgates of mercy open up because we need the reinforcement. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, I think... It, it's Pius the tenth, Pius the tenth, or Pius the ninth, who I think it's Pius the tenth, who who came out and said, no, it, it's very good for the faithful to receive Holy Communion, not just every week, but even even conceivably if they are able to go to daily mass. And um, I think the reason why that happened is exactly what Super Nerd just said. I think that our Lord knew. Uh, oh, well, of course, our Lord knew what was about to happen. That's a that's a ridiculous statement. But because of what was about to unfold, um, it our Lord told us to do this because people would need 
need that extra strength in order to to get through this this collapse in Christendom. And here we all are. And so especially in these dark days, in the midst of this anti-papacy, again, getting on this soapbox, if you can if you can possibly get to daily mass, get to daily mass and um, move, do whatever you have to do. If you have that that flexibility, get to where you can go to mass because we need this. It really is. It's it's food, it's fuel, it's medicine, whatever analogy you want to make. Um it's what we need to get through this. Um, and then read John six over and over again. (laughs) It's right there. The ones who will be saved are the ones who eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now you have to be in a state of grace. You have to go to confession, but, um, but you, it's really, really important to do this. And if you're not in the church, get into the church. Don't waste any more time. I don't know how much longer we have. Um, there's a lot of people who are looking at this October, 2017 date and just at looking at the confluence events and all of this stuff that's going on. It's, it's hard not to entertain the thought that we might be coming up to a, a very, very seminal date in human history. Don't, don't wait around, get in. I, I believe it was, uh, Pope St. Pius X who lowered the communion age to the age of reason, as opposed to being 13 or 15, making the point that um, by the time children, young adults reach that age, they, in, in some cases, could already be set in vice. They need that, that protective uh, power, that, that, that um, buttressing that communion gives to the soul. I don't recall which, which pope it was who, who uh, allowed daily communion. But in, in terms of uh, October uh, this year, yeah, we may be looking at a different kind of October revolution again. Uh, do we want to talk about um, whether or not the, the, the West has a, a suicide wish? Well, I think it's pretty clear that it does, um, but I think we should save that for next week. But I do want to mention, Super Nerd, do we, do we want to try to do a Financial Friday this week? Um, that's something we've been talking about for a while, doing a second podcast. It it's just a matter of getting uh, schedules to line up. Um, I've got a full-time and a half job the way it is now, and um, the podcast is something I'm, I'm doing uh, for fun and, and also for, for my own education. Half I'm scribbling down pages of notes that, of things I've, I need to look up. I mean, I should know off the top of my head which Pope uh, made, made uh, communion uh, daily allowable, but that's something I'm going to look up after the show. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, if, if, we, if the schedules line up and, and this is something that, that'll work, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do a, a second podcast if you're up for it. Yeah, it, it might not be every Friday, but um, I do want to re-engage the the financial part of my audience and and re-engage actually what was was my career and what my area of expertise, such as it was, is. And there's a lot to talk about. So um, we just letting you all know that's kind of on the burner. And when when schedules align and so forth, you will see these secondary podcasts popping up called Financial Friday. So be or on the whatever, lookout for that. Whatever we end up calling them, uh, Financial Weekend Edition. Actually, that name's taken. Um, we'll, we'll come up with yeah. that. <laughs> so we'll, well, it'll be something, you bet. Uh, so we want to wrap it up then for this week? I think we should. Yes, sir. Okay, just as a general reminder, the Benefactor Masses are Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Remember to fix your intentions and join with the Mass spiritually. Make a spiritual communion. Feedback. The email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Send in your questions and, and feedback there. And a general reminder, the Diabolical Narcissism Narcissism DVD can be ordered on Anne's website. The price, which includes shipping, is $20 for buyers in the United States, $22 uh, for international orders. And if you can prove that you've got a shipping address in Vatican City, I'll only charge you $15. But you need to prove it. (laughs) I don't want a bunch of orders for George Bergoglio, Casa Santa Marta, Vatican City. They're just going to throw those in the trash. You're better off offering your prayers, spiritual communions, and rosaries for him. But uh, yeah, if you can prove that you you really do collect your mail in the Vatican City, email me at podcast at barnhart.biz and uh, I'll make you a deal. Indeed. <laughs> well said. Any parting words for this week? Just thanks, as always, to one and all. And thank you, Super Nerd, for all of your time that you spend doing this. You're, you go above and beyond. May God reward you. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm continuing to learn, which is something I enjoy doing, and, and whether it's uh, programming or the faith. And uh, this is definitely a, a, a motivator to keep me sharp because you raise topics that uh, sometimes I'm not ready for. And it's like, darn it, this is more I need to study. So my, my goal is to stay a step ahead of you in all this. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll keep, I'll keep trying to challenge you. Okay. Until next week, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. God bless, guys. Take care. Have a good week. 